You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with this afternoon's sermon, in which we will consider the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 2, we'll first turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll read the first nine verses there. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Thus far, our reading from Deuteronomy will now turn to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 7. We'll read the verses 7 through 8, verse 4. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy. And the commandment is is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced in me through what was good. It produced death in me through what was good. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because, Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 2 of the Heidelberg Catechism. From where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Can you keep all this perfectly? No, I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I suspect that question and answer three of the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the most cherished by catechism students who go through the practice of memorizing the catechism Probably not for the most sanctified reasons. Probably the reason is that it's the shortest one of them all. From where do you know your sins and misery? If you would ask any catechism student, they'd probably immediately be able to rattle off for you from the law of God. It's one that you don't quickly forget. But yet, when we consider this question and answer from a different angle, then you realize that This is actually one that we very, or in which we very quickly and easily forget. What I mean is that we're only in Lord's Day 2. We were just in Lord's Day 1. And already we quickly forget that we are speaking here as those who belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It seems when you come to Lord's Day 2 and all of a sudden it's all, oh no, sin and misery. We forget that we're speaking about sin and misery as those who belong to Jesus Christ. As those who belong to Jesus Christ. We have to understand the context here. We quickly forget. And isn't that how it goes in our lives as well? You have that same dynamic of of one minute walking by faith and trusting ourselves to Jesus Christ, praising him because of his grace and the knowledge that we belong to him. And then suddenly the next minute we're, we're flying off the handle. We've completely lost our confidence at some minor inconvenience in our lives. Or we're slipping into despair because of the presence of sin 
in our lives or in the lives of those around us. Even if we desire strongly to to just stay positive and just to focus on the good things, even as being a Christian, there's this whole movement, especially among Christian literature, to to just leave out all the all the things that sound kind of negative and only focus on the positive. But you can't do that for very long before the realities of life come back for you. They come to bear on you and teach you, impress upon, impress upon you the realities, yes, even in the Christian life to those who belong to Jesus Christ, of sin and of misery. This is the way it is. Not in any sort of fatalistic way, but this is the way it is for the people of God now, in this age, in this time. We belong to Jesus Christ, but His work is not yet complete, neither in the world nor in us. This is the way it is. The realities of sin and misery always coming to bear on our lives because of the nature of the world that we live in and because of the nature of our hearts. The nature that still lives within us. The question we need to ask is... Where is the meaning in all of this sin and misery? What's the point of Lord's Day 2? What's the point of question answer 2 where it tells us that we need to know our sin and misery and how great they are in order to live and die in the joy of the comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ? God's word reveals to us that those who belong to Jesus Christ know their sin and misery so that they can grow in their faith in Jesus Christ and experience greater joy and stronger comfort in their Savior as a result. And so my purpose this afternoon is to show you, in a small way, how this happens. In preaching on this Lord's Day We need to remember that we can never stray too far from Lord's Day 1. We have to keep Lord's Day 1 as our anchor as we, as we wade into the area, the realm of sin and misery. In fact, we have to explain sin and misery in light of the fact that we are, that we, as His church, belong to Jesus Christ. So those who belong to Jesus Christ know their sin and misery. Those who belong to Jesus Christ know their sin and misery. In fact, they desire to know their sin and misery because God reveals it to them in his law, because God reveals it to them also in their lives, and so that they can live and die in the joy of comfort. Those who belong to Jesus Christ know and desire to know their sin and misery. In the first place, because God reveals it to them in his law. Now, what are we speaking about when we're speaking about the law of God? We're talking about the law, of course, that God has revealed to us in his word, in scripture. That's where we find God's law. 
In a sense, we're talking about every commandment that's contained in the Bible when we speak about God's law. It's, it's God's will, God's direction, God's obligations for the lives of his covenant people. But if you were to look closely at scripture, you'd see that, that most of the commands of God can be drawn, can be traced back to the first five books of the Bible, aptly named by the Jews the Torah. Or, as it's translated, the law. Five books of the first five books of the Bible, the law. And if you were to look closely at that, you'd see at the very heart of the Torah, the law, is the Ten Commandments. There's other aspects of the law. There's the, there's the civil law. There's the ceremonial law. But at the very heart are the commandments that go right to the heart of God's relationship with his people. You might even call them the, the covenantal law. It's the ten words of God's covenant. It goes right to the heart of God's relationship with his people and with their relationship with him and with others. You might call it the relational law. So when we speak about the law of God, we're speaking about all the commands of God, but especially as they're captured in the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, although they're given in the Old Covenant, clearly they transition to the New Covenant. So much of this law is, is absorbed and, and adopted by the New Testament writers that it's all over the New Testament. As they impress the obligations of serving Jesus Christ in the New Covenant era, they're constantly drawing on this law of the Old Testament. Yes, some parts of it are fulfilled and completed in Jesus Christ, But these relational, covenantal aspects of the law continue for us also today. So, what about this law? The big question that people are often asking, and people are often even debating, is whether this law is good or bad. Is is God's law ultimately a good thing for us today as Christians in the New Testament era? Or is it a bad thing? Is it an overwhelmingly negative thing to contrast with the good things that the Bible tells us about? Some people seem to love the law, while other people find the law burdensome and negative. Well, the Apostle Paul speaks, in fact, both ways about the law. He says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8 that the law is good. And then in the very next verse, he says that the law is for lawbreakers and rebels. Seemingly negative aspect of the law. In Romans 7 verse 12, he says that the law is holy, righteous, and good. Complete. Sounding like Psalm 19 in the way he's speaking about the law. But then elsewhere in Romans chapter 3, he says the law brings wrath. He says in chapter 5 that the law was added so that trespass might increase. Doesn't sound so positive about the law at that point. So what are we to, what are we to think about God's law? Is God's law good or is it bad? What's the nature? What's the character of God's law? Well, consider with me for a moment what it would be like to not have God's law. To not know the Ten Commandments. To have it nowhere Decreed to us, declared to us, revealed to us what God's will in the Ten Commandments was. Never to have that picked up elsewhere in the Bible. 
to be free in a sense from all the obligations of the law. You could serve any God you wanted because that's the first command. You could make an idol of God. You could, you could serve him in any way that your heart desired. If your heart had a desire about God, you could, you could make that to be God himself. Make it in the form of an idol, in the form of an image. You could kill. You could steal. You could commit adultery at will. You could do whatever you wanted. Whatever your heart desired, that is what you could pursue as long as, of course, no one else stood in the way. Now, if you didn't have the law, no one else would have the law either. They'd have the same rules, or in this case, the same lack of rules. Now, their gods would be different than yours. Their zeal for their god would probably come in conflict with yours. They could also kill and steal and commit adultery at will. So you'd need to be careful. In fact, you'd probably live your life in fear. Because of all the people around you with no obligation in any way in the way that they lived their lives. Even if you were the most powerful and somehow you could exert your will at the expense of everyone else, you'd still live in the dread and in the constant fear of the possibility of someone coming along and and finishing you off and taking all your power from you. Now, it's sort of ridiculous to even think about not having a law. It wouldn't be happiness at all. We would all be like boats afloat, pushed here and there by every wind of desire that that comes upon us, crashing against each other, wreaking havoc, violence, fear, dread. Anyone with an ounce of sense can quickly realize how tremendously and graciously God has helped us By revealing the law to us. By teaching us that he is a holy and a just God. And he's not a God of disorder, but of peace. And that he has a will. That he knows as our creator and our king what is right and good for our lives. And since even if we didn't know the law... God would continue to be who he was, holy and just. Even if we did not know his law, we would still be guilty of transgressing his holiness and his justice. So clearly the law is a good thing. And consider what God's law urges us to do. When we think of, of law, sometimes it's possible that we can fall into this idea that, that God's law is somehow those parts of scriptures which are oppressive, which are negative, which are scolding in nature, telling us all the things that we're not to do. But consider the summary in Matthew 22 that we find in our Lord's Day this afternoon. Of course, that we find in the Word of God. And the Lord Jesus, of course, in in giving the summary of the law and teaching that expert in the law what the greatest command is, he wasn't inventing some radical new interpretation of the law. He was simply summarizing what could already be found in the law. We read it 
in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It just summarizes the whole law itself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. What's oppressive and negative and scolding about that? That's the greatest commandment in the summary of the first table of the law. Love God. Love the Lord your God. Of course you should. He's your God. He's your creator. He's a God of grace, of love, mercy, compassion, holiness, and justice. Love him. And love your neighbor as yourself. Of course you should. They're made in the image of God. God has made them with worth and dignity. God loves them. We ought to too. This is a positive expression of the law, but it's a summary of the whole thing. The law is overwhelmingly, in this sense, positive. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, they hear this command, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, and their hearts say, yes, yes, this is good stuff. This is what we need. This is what we need as those who belong to Jesus Christ. This is the way forward for us. This is how we are to walk. The law is not about about limiting our freedom, about scolding us or oppressing us. The law is about pointing us the way forward in our freedom. This is the way forward for those who live in Jesus Christ and who seek to honor and worship God properly. So the law is good. The problem, then, is not with the law. These, these aspects of scripture that, where Paul talks about this negative sort of tone of the law, how it, how it causes sin to increase and how it brings wrath, it's not a problem with the law. That's a problem with us. It's our problem with our sinful nature. Because what happens when we have the law, this this law which is good and holy and righteous, this law which is pure, what happens when we have the law? We say, oh great, now I know how I'm supposed to live. And so 100% of the time, with all of my heart, I can now serve God in the way that he desires, right? No. It's not what happens when we receive the law. We do learn what is right and good. Our hearts even respond to that, but they don't always do what's right and good. Our heart does not always want to follow the direction that God has laid out for us and for our lives in his law. What happens when God reveals his law to us is that it reveals the sin that is present within us. In our sinful nature, we do not know what God wants us to do, and neither do we do it. That is, without the law, we wouldn't know what to do right, and we wouldn't do what's right. What the law does is tells us what we are to do, so that we know that which is good and right. But the law does not make us able to do it. So this is the reason for those negative words about the law that are given in the Bible, in the Apostle Paul particularly. As Paul wrestles with the implications of the law in Romans 7, the verdict is clear to him in chapter 7, verse 21 and onwards. 
So I find there's a lot at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? What does Paul say? After he comes to this conclusion about the reality of sin and misery in his lives, does he say, Paul, you've got to think positive thoughts. Don't, don't get caught up in all that sin stuff. You've got to block that out. Just think about the positives. No, he doesn't say that. Does he just say, Paul, stop with the negative self-talk. Don't, don't keep reminding yourself of all the bad things that you do. No, he doesn't say that. He acknowledges it. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? What leaves Paul to conclude that he's a wretched man in his body of death? It's not the law. It's himself. It's Paul. The very next verse in Romans 7 reveals the value of knowing your sin and misery from God's law. We'll read that verse through to 8 verse 4. After he asks that question, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And then he carries on in chapter 8. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. What is God's purpose in teaching us about our sin, in giving us his holy law, in revealing the sinfulness of our lives, it is so that we might look outside of ourselves, acknowledge that we are wretched people in ourselves who need to be rescued from this body of death, and so that we might look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. God reveals to us our sin in order to reveal to us our Savior. And what you might ask is God's purpose beyond that. That we know Christ is our Savior, but why do those who belong to Jesus Christ need to continue to know their sin and misery? How does that help us? Well, there are at least three things that become clear from the word of God, from this passage and others, in conclusion, three reasons why, as those who belong to Jesus Christ, we need to know our sin and misery. The first reason, and this is dealt with earlier in the book of Romans, is to keep a self-willed and a self-satisfied religiosity from creeping in on us. Yes, as Christians, as those who belong to Jesus Christ, 
if you make the rules, then you can bend them to suit your desires and your strengths so that you can fool yourself into thinking that you're living a perfectly sanctified life. But God's law has this way, doesn't it? As we hear it week after week, it has this way of exposing us when we become proud and complacent. But the catechism later speaks about preaching God's law strictly in order to expose that pride and complacency in our hearts. One reason we might not want to hear the law is because we may not want to, may not want it to expose the hypocrisy that we live with. The Lord Jesus, in his ministry, spoke about a lot about the law. He argued about the law. He, he went back to the law when he was speaking with the Pharisees and the so-called experts in the law. He didn't tell them that the law didn't matter. Oh, don't worry about the law. That's old covenant kind of stuff. Pretty soon you don't have to worry about that. No, he said he showed them the weight of the law in order to try and break their, break through their pride and hypocrisy. To show that, in fact, they were not keeping God's law. Look at what God's law says, he would tell them. You're not keeping it. You're, you're keeping the light things of the law, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. God's law breaks through our pride and complacency. God's law makes us humble. And humility is a great character trait for those who live by faith in Jesus Christ. It teaches us to live by faith and not to rely on ourselves or our own effort. So the first reason to keep that, that self-willed and self-satisfied religiosity from creeping in on us. The second reason is ordered, is in order to build in us a great appreciation for what Jesus Christ has done for us. As those who belong to Jesus Christ, this always needs to be fresh and alive for us. That ringing cry of Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, is triumphant only because of the futility that Paul expresses in Romans chapter 7 and in elsewhere in the book of Romans. Those who are in Christ Jesus feel liberated by that proclamation because they felt the weight of the law. And they've been frustrated by their own inability to live the life that God has called them to live. Or to live a life free from sin. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then you can say, outside of Christ, I would be condemned. And God would have every right to condemn me. And those who belong to Jesus Christ can also say, in Christ, I still get frustrated. I still get frustrated by sin. I still get frustrated by the law because it keeps revealing sin in me. But that frustration gives way to gratitude and thankfulness. Because it teaches me to love and honor my Savior, Jesus Christ, all the more. Because he's given his life as a sin offering for me and for the sins of my life. When you can say that, then you understand something of the power of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And third, God would have us who belong to Jesus Christ continue to know and to learn 
about our sin and misery in order to build in us a strong desire for what Jesus Christ will do in us. The presence of sin in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ doesn't mean that they don't belong to Jesus Christ. Christian sin, those who are in Christ, do sin. They fight against it. They're frustrated by it. They repent from it. But they sin. It doesn't mean that they don't belong to Jesus Christ, but it does mean that the work of Jesus Christ is not yet complete in them. And so it nurtures in them a desire for sanctification, a desire for holiness, a desire to live according to the Spirit, as Paul will go on in Romans chapter 8 to speak about. The reality of sin in our lives calls, uh, teaches us to cry out to Jesus Christ for the mercy of forgiveness, but also for the mercy of renewal in our lives, to cleanse us, to renew our hearts, to teach us the way of righteousness, to teach us what is good, to teach us the way to live according to God's holy law. And so as those who confess in Lord's Day 1 that we belong to Jesus Christ, we also need to be willing to look deeply into the law of God to understand what God's will is. And we need to see God's law intersect with our lives and, yes, the sinful realities that are still there in our lives and the miseries that are that are present as well. But we need to do this so that we can grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can praise God for his salvation. And we can be changed more and more to become like us, like him, as his spirit works in us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.